Welcome back to the Effective Ministry Podcast, the podcast that helps you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your local church. My name is Tim Bealhartz. I'm a children's ministry advisor for YouthWorks in Sydney. Last episode, I was joined by Al James and Naomi DeVries in talking through the papers from the 2023 House Conference, which at the time of recording is only days away. While we were away at House Conference, I thought I would line up for you something special. Last year, in 2022, not only did we have two academic papers written for House by the Reverend Dr. Andrew Spaulding and the Reverend Dr. Tim Escott, not only did we release a podcast episode talking through these papers, which you can find on episode number nine, but we also got our speakers to make audio recordings of those papers. And that, friends, is what you are going to hear over the next two episodes. This week, we have the Reverend Dr. Andrew Spaulding, Academic Dean and Lecturer in Old Testament at YouthWorks College, with his paper, Nothing New Under the Sun, Ecclesiastes as a Critique of the Postmodern Quest. Andrew did his PhD on Ecclesiastes and it has a fascinating take on the book. While it is by no means novel, he readily admits it is a minority view and it's one that took me by surprise. However, I think he's won me over. I won't spoil his paper by saying any more. Have a listen to Andrew, read through his paper, and if you'd like to let me know what you think about it, then please email me at effectiveministrypodcast at youthworks.net. That's enough for me. Enjoy this 2022 House Conference paper by the Reverend Dr. Andrew Spaulding. Nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes as a critique of the postmodern quest. 1. Preparing young people for life in a postmodern age. The most cited statistic in the world of children's and youth ministry is that more than three quarters of people who come to faith do so before the age of 20. This statistic demonstrates the importance of the work done by the Christian parent, the children's and youth minister, the scripture teacher, and the school chaplain alike. We rightly use these numbers to persuade church leaders to direct funds and human capital towards children's and youth ministry. But this optimistic picture is tarnished by a more embarrassing statistic. Approximately half of young Christians abandon their faith in their first decade of adulthood. There are various diagnoses of the high dropout rate of young people. However, the broad consensus is that we have failed to prepare young people for life in the contemporary age. The story, the great struggle of this emerging generation, is learning how to live faithfully in a new context to be in the world but not of the world. These young Christians find themselves in a rapidly changing world, particularly with respect to religious beliefs. The dropout rate of young people from the church is occurring within the context of increasing secularization. The nuns are now the fastest growing category of religious belief. Australian census data records an increase in no religion from 19% in 2006 to 39% in 2021. While identification with Christianity has declined from 64%, to 44% over the same period. This loss of religion, however, masks a counter trend towards a renewed pursuit of spiritual significance. Nearly half of Australians, 47%, think more about the meaning of life 
during the pandemic, with Generation Z, those born between 1995 and 2009, and Generation Y, born between 1980 and 1994, leading the way in the renewed spiritual search. This context, in which young people face a plurality of options for understanding the world, usually apart from traditional religious institutions, is what I call the postmodern age. It is much easier to identify the challenge before children's and youth ministers in the 21st century than it is to provide a solution. Christian commentators have proposed a wide range of responses, arguing that we need to strengthen Christian beliefs and practices, provide deep intergenerational relationships, make the gospel more culturally relevant, utilize the common ground between expressive individualism and reformed evangelicalism, or to let them go in a deconstructive and subversive expression of love. Concerned adults who are helping young people to navigate life in the postmodern age may feel like they are facing a new crisis, but this is not the case. The Old Testament concept of wisdom, as espoused in the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, was written to address similar issues millennia before our time. In this paper, I argue that the ancient wisdom of Ecclesiastes contains profound insights for discipling young people even, or especially, in the postmodern age. 2. Ecclesiastes as a Critique of Flawed Wisdom 2.1. Ecclesiastes as a Postmodern Book Before I examine the teaching of Ecclesiastes, it is important to respond to an obvious objection. How could a book that predates modern secularism by some two millennia have anything specific to say in response to our cultural moment? Aside from appealing to the theological concept of the sufficiency of Scripture, interpreters frequently note the peculiar cultural relevance of Ecclesiastes as perhaps the most postmodern book in the canon. In a postmodern worldview, there is a scepticism towards objective truth and meta-narratives. For Gary Salia and Douglas Ingram, the book of Ecclesiastes reflects such an understanding by being deliberately ambiguous. Ecclesiastes frustrates the reader's attempt at meaning-making, much in the same way that we experience the world around us. Ingram explains that this is why interpreters cannot agree on even the basics of the book, such as its message and the meaning of key words and phrases. Fox believes that the contradictions in the book of Ecclesiastes reflect the contradictions that the author observes in the world. He also notes a resonance between Ecclesiastes and the post-existentialist philosopher Albert Camus. Finally, Peter Lightheart detects similarities between Solomon's frustration with the uncertainty and instability of the world and the postmodern concept of provisionality. But Solomon, according to Lightheart, responds to such a view by providing the firm ground of transcendence and divine judgment. I agree that Ecclesiastes has much to say to our cultural moment. However, I will argue below that it is specifically the character of Kohelet that is, the teacher or preacher, and his quest 
in 112 to 223 that reflect the postmodern age. 2.2. Kohelet as negative example. Many of the so-called ambiguities within Ecclesiastes reflect a tension between the words of Kohelet in 1.2 to 12.8 and those of the narrator in the epilogue, 12.9 to 14. While historical critical interpreters of the 19th and early 20th century tended to dismiss the epilogue as a later edition from a concerned editor, recent interpreters, influenced by the literary turn in biblical studies, have sought to appreciate the dialogue created by the differing perspectives of Kohelet and the narrator. My own approach is to take the literary design of the book at face value. Kohelet's words are a quotation presented by the narrator. The narrator, or implied author, therefore, has the final say on the meaning of his work, thus elevating the authority of his own words, the epilogue, over those of his character, Kohelet. The narrator speaks with his own voice in the epilogue of 12.9-14, where he presents his evaluation of Kohelet and states his goals in verses 12 and 13. Moreover, my son, take warning from them. The excessive production of books is without end, and too much reflection is wearying to the flesh. The end of the matter. Everything has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands. This is for everyone. Put simply, the narrator writes to his son, in order to deter him from wisdom like Kohelet's and to direct him towards biblical wisdom. The words of Kohelet that make up the body of the book, therefore, are a means to achieve these goals. As a character, Kohelet's words are open to the scrutiny of the reader, just as we might scrutinise the words of Job's friends or even those of Job himself. The narrator's invitation of such scrutiny is indicated by the way he holds Kohelet's words at arm's length, with a threefold says Kohelet at the beginning, 1 verse 2, middle, 7 verse 27, and end of Kohelet's speech, 12 verse 8. The narrator's comments in the epilogue are at best ambivalent towards the reliability of Kohelet's wisdom, or in my view, critical of it. Approaching Kohelet's wisdom as almost entirely flawed is a minority position within biblical scholarship, but it is by no means an outlier. For the purpose of this paper, however, you only need to agree with me that Kohelet's wisdom in 1 verse 12 to 2 verse 23 is flawed. And here there is almost universal consensus, as even the strongest supporters of Kohelet agree that his initial quest in 1.12 to 2.23 is unsuccessful. 2.3. The failure of Kohelet's wisdom. The wisdom that Kohelet employs in at least 1 verse 12 to 2 verse 23, but arguably the whole book, fails to deliver what he is looking for. This failure is stated most emphatically by the refrain of 1 verse 2 and 12 verse 8, which frame Kohelet's speech. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. The key word vanity 
punctuates Kohelet's whole discourse another 30 times, occurring most frequently in 112 to 2 verse 23. The translation of this word vanity, hevel, is another point of contention amongst commentators, who opt variously for vanity, meaningless, fleeting, absurd, senseless, or more literally, vapour. There are benefits to each of these translations, but the overall point of this expression is that Kohelet did not find what he was looking for, and so his efforts were in vain. This is brought out most clearly in the threefold conclusion of 2 verse 11, which places the vanity refrain in parallel with the futile activity of striving after wind and the statement of his null result, there was no gain. I turned to all my work which my hands had done and to the toil that I had toiled to do, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was no gain under the sun. Ecclesiastes 2.11 The opening refrain, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, thus raises a question in the reader's mind. Why did Kohelet's wisdom fail him? One answer could be that he directed his wisdom towards wrong ends or used it in the wrong domains. Indeed, Many sermons and pastoral commentaries labour this point. We seek for answers in the wrong places. When pleasure alone is the centre of life, the result will ultimately be disappointment and emptiness. And work alone cannot satisfy the human heart, no matter how successful that work may be. There is certainly truth in these approaches, but they are only part of the story. In the following section, I will argue that Kohelet fails to find what he is looking for because his wisdom, the mode of his searching, not just the objects of his search, falls short of the biblical standard of wisdom, which finds its clearest expression in the book of Proverbs. 2.4. A closer look at Kohelet's wisdom. Here I will provide my analysis of Kohelet's wisdom and its flaws, before applying these insights to ministry to children and adolescents in a postmodern age. Two assumptions I bring to my analysis are that 1. The implied reader is familiar with Israel's scriptures, as suggested by 12 verse 13, and is, therefore, expected to recognise allusions to at least the Torah and Israel's wisdom tradition. 2. Kohelet, as a fictional character, is not responsible for these illusions. Rather, these illusions are the work of the author who has created Kohelet's speech. Kohelet's goal. Before looking at Kohelet's quest in 112 to 2 verse 23, we must identify the goal of his quest, which he states most clearly in 1 verse 3. What profit is there for a person for all their toil, which they toil under the sun? At first glance, Kohelet's wisdom places him firmly in the centre of the wisdom tradition, which asks, what is good for humankind? Wisdom, after all, is concerned with the most effective way of living in the world, which the Bible affirms as God's world. Such a goal is articulated by Proverbs as 
to win favor and approval in the sight of God and people. Proverbs 3 verse 4. A closer look at Kohelet's question, however, reveals some oddities in his choice of vocabulary. Kohelet speaks not of what is good or of finding favor, but of profit or gain. This term is financial, referring to a surplus that remains after all the credits and debits of an account have been calculated. Although entirely absent from the rest of the Old Testament, this is one of Kohelet's favourite terms, found in 2 verse 11, verse 13, 3 verse 9, and so on. Other financial terms in Kohelet's discourse include portion or salary, account, and lack or deficit. There may be other explanations for Kohelet's use of financial terminology, but I argue that it reflects Kohelet's transactional approach to wisdom as opposed to the relational wisdom of Proverbs. Put differently, Kohelet uses wisdom for what he can get out of it, whereas the wisdom of Proverbs is an end in itself. The embrace of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 1 verse 20 to 33 and 8, verse 1 to 36, and the fear of Yahweh, Proverbs 1, verse 7, and so on. As we have seen, the good life, as defined in Proverbs, is one lived in a favorable relationship with God and people, Proverbs 3, verse 4. Turning now to Ecclesiastes 1, 12 to 2, 23, there are three unique features of Kohelet's discourse that draw attention to his style of wisdom. Kohelet's heart. After his self-introduction in 1 verse 12, Kohelet begins his quest. He immediately mentions his heart, which hereafter plays a dominant role in his endeavours. Kohelet uses the word heart, the Hebrew word lev or levav, on 42 occasions. But most significant are the 18 instances where he speaks of his own heart. In Hebrew thought, the heart can refer to many different aspects of a person. It is the center of knowledge, desires, feelings, and the will. Within the context of wisdom literature, it is often assumed that the emphasis falls upon knowledge. So, it is often translated mind. For Kohelet, however, his heart is no mere organ of thought. It is instrumental in his search. 1 verse 13, 1 verse 17, 2 verse 3. It is a conversation partner. 1 verse 16, 2 verse 1, and 2 verse 15. And the seat of his experiences of wisdom. 1 verse 16, pleasure. 2 verse 10, and despair. 2 verse 20. Critical to understanding the role of Kohelet's heart in his search is the identification of an allusion to Numbers 15.39. Do not follow after, tua, your own heart, levav, and your own eyes, ayin, which you are inclined to whore after. The word explore or follow after, tua, is relatively infrequent in the Old Testament, occurring mainly in a literal sense 
to refer to the activity of the Hebrew spies in the book of Numbers, but also in a metaphorical sense in the warning of Numbers 15 verse 39. Kohelet's declaration of setting his heart, lave, to explore, tour, ought to concern the attentive reader of the Torah. The combination of these two terms implies that Kohelet's heart refers to his will and his desires. Kohelet, therefore, gives his heart a leading role in his search. For Kohelet, as in the prohibition of Numbers 15.39, the heart is the organ of the will and the desires. It is unsurprising that such a search leads him in the direction of alcohol, self-aggrandizing achievements, material possessions, and concubines. Yet the author's critique is not just that Kohelet has looked in the wrong place, but that he has accorded a leading role to his heart. Kohelet's sight. Another answer to the question, why did Kohelet's wisdom fail him, can be found in his emphasis upon the role of experience in becoming wise. This is expressed by another of Kohelet's favourite terms, to see or experience, ra'ah, appearing in 1 verse 14, 1 verse 16, 2 verse 1, 2 verse 3, and so on. Kohelet focuses upon his own experience in 1 verse 12 to 2.23 and then turns his attention to observing the experiences of other people in much of the rest of the book. Kohelet's need to see or experience things for himself is illustrated most starkly by his strategy of exploring both extremes of wisdom and folly. He states this in 1 verse 17, 2 verse 3, 2 verse 12, and 7 verse 25. Kohelet's reliance upon experience probably doesn't strike the contemporary reader as odd. On the contrary, it may even lend credibility to Kohelet in our eyes because his search is so thorough. We could even consider Kohelet to be an early empiricist. However, this would be to judge Kohelet by our own standards rather than those of the implied reader, who is evaluating Kohelet's words through the lens of Israel's wisdom tradition. In the book of Proverbs, the most important of the senses for acquiring wisdom is not sight, but hearing. Proverbs recommends sight and observation as a means of learning on only a few occasions. But this pales in comparison to the importance of listening. Proverbs 1 verse 5, Proverbs 1 verse 8, 1 verse 33, 4 verse 1, and so on. Also see attentiveness in 1 verse 24, 2 verse 2, 4 verse 1, and so on. And the use of the ear in Proverbs 2 verse 2, 5 verse 1, 5 verse 13, and so on. The wise man or woman according to the biblical standard, is the one who has received the tradition or teaching of other wise people. Kohelet's wisdom fails, therefore, because it ignores the advice of others in favour of seeing things for himself. Like the expressive individualist in today's age, Kohelet shows little interest 
in the wisdom of his forebears. This is cast aside in favor of experiencing life for himself, even if this means making some bitter discoveries, see 7 verse 26, that may have otherwise been avoided. Kohelet self. A final reason for the failure of Kohelet's wisdom can be found in the overwhelming presence of his self. Kohelet's discourse, especially within 1 verse 12 to 2 verse 23, is dominated by first-person verbs and pronouns, far beyond what is necessary even for a first-person memoir. This problem is most acute within chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. I made my works great. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them trees bearing every kind of fruit. I made pools of water for myself to water forests of sprouting trees. I acquired manservants and maidservants, and household slaves were born to me. Moreover, I had larger herds of cattle and flocks than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I amassed for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I appointed for myself male and female singers and the delights of men, a large harem. In these five verses, Kohelet employs the ethical dative, for myself, six times. The ethical dative subtly conveys the sense of Kohelet's limitless capacity for activity, directed only toward the end of his own pleasure. It is these verses that readers often associate with King Solomon because of his great quantities of silver and gold, slaves and concubines. It is striking that Kohelet, if he were speaking as Solomon, makes no boasts about horses, chariots, military or the building of the temple. After all, these are the great works Solomon did for the benefit of his people. Similarly, there is no acknowledgement of God's role in making Kohelet great. Whereas Solomon acknowledges that he is but a little child in 1 Kings 3.7 and receives both wealth and wisdom from God, 1 Kings 3.11-12. Kohelet simply says, I became great in 2 verse 9. In contrast to Solomon, King Kohelet achieves greatness for himself and by himself. Following 1.12 to 2.23, there is no further mention of Kohelet's kingship as the fiction has served its purpose. Even if a king of Solomonic intellect and resources cannot succeed with this type of wisdom, then no one can. The prominence of Kohelet's self is also seen in his unusual expression, I said in my heart, used in 2 verse 1, 2 verse 15, 3 verse 17, 3 verse 18, and 1 verse 16. And the expanded form, I turned, I and my heart, to know and to seek out, in 7 verse 25. Kohelet's extensive internal deliberations seem perfectly normal to a postmodern reader or psychological man, but it is far from the biblical pattern 
for a character to have his speech so consistently self-focused. When other Old Testament texts use the expression, I said in my heart, it always introduces foolish thoughts. It is such self-reliance and internally originating thoughts that that Proverbs warns against when it says, Lean not on your own understanding, Proverbs 3.5. It is surely no accident, therefore, that Kohelet's discourse is laden with this expression. Kohelet's excessive use of first-person pronouns, the great works he does for himself and by himself, and his self-directed speech make one thing clear. Kohelet is the author and protagonist of his quest throughout Ecclesiastes 1.12-2.23. This is the final reason why his wisdom fails. 2.5 Summary Kohelet's wisdom, at least in 1.12-2.23, but I would argue in his entire speech, is presented by the author of Ecclesiastes as an example of a flawed approach to wisdom. Kohelet's wisdom, by his own admission, fails to achieve its intended goal. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. The reason that Kohelet's wisdom fails is not simply that he directs it towards wrong ends. Rather, the very mode of Kohelet's wisdom is flawed. It is led by his heart, built upon experiencing things for himself, and is inherently self-focused. I now turn to consider the points of contact between the wisdom of Kohelet and the wisdom of the post-modern age. 3. Navigating the post-modern age with the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. 3.1. Kohelet's wisdom and the postmodern age. A comparison between Kohelet's wisdom and the wisdom of our age highlights several intriguing intersections. Specifically, I see an overlap between Kohelet's quest and the expressive individualism which flourishes in the postmodern era. As a basic starting point for the tenets of expressive individualism, Brian Rosner provides the following. 1. The best way to find yourself is to look inward. 2. The highest goal in life is happiness. 3. All moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference. 4. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. 5. The world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. 6. Everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. 7. Certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, ethnicity, or sexuality, are of paramount importance. To be sure, there are some immediately obvious differences between Kohelet's worldview and some of the tenets above. He certainly does not share the optimism of Tenet 5. He also does not express any particular interest in markers of identity such as gender, ethnicity or sexuality, Tenet 7. 
Kohelet, while certainly on an individual quest, does not hold self-expression, that is, authenticity, to be an end in itself. Tenet 6. There remains, however, much in Tenets 1-4 to that resonate with Kohelet's own quest. These tenets focus more on the individualist end of expressive individualism. The, the leading role of Kohelet's heart in his search reflects the inward turn of Tenet 1. Kohelet's, Kohelet's highest goal, gain, would appear to concern something more substantial and enduring than happiness, perhaps, Tenet 2. However, it could be said that the expressive individualist is also looking for something more fulfilling than a fleeting moment of pleasure. Charles Taylor could almost be describing Kohelet when he speaks of the young person's profound dissatisfaction with a life encased entirely in the imminent order. The sense is that this life is empty, flat, devoid of higher purpose. Finally, we can note the congruence between Tenets 3 and 4 and Kohelet's style of wisdom. He all but omits any reference to Israel's religious beliefs or wisdom traditions as a source of authority. In its place, Kohelet turns to his own experiences and his observations of the experiences of others, that is, his sight. Kohelet illustrates what Bartholomew calls an autonomous epistemology. As with Taylor's account of religion in today's world, Kohelet's quest is defined by a kind of autonomous exploration, which is opposed to a simple surrender to authority. Kohelet, then, is certainly an individualist. He looks within for his sense of direction, rejects external authorities such as scripture and tradition, and independently pursues what he wants. The label expressive is a less appropriate description of his wisdom. But the significant overlap that remains between Kohelet and expressive individualism would suggest there is much wisdom for our age to be found in the book of Ecclesiastes. 3.2. Critiquing Expressive Individualism The various intersections between Kohelet and expressive individualism mean that Ecclesiastes' critique of Kohelet's self-reliant wisdom has much to offer us in our ministry to young people in the postmodern age. The executive summary of this critique is an approach to wisdom that turns inward, being led by the desires, building upon one's own experiences, and relying upon one, one's own strength and resources, is doomed to fail. Kohelet's admission of the failure of his wisdom are his honest words of truth, 12 verse 10, acknowledged by the narrator. Portrayed as a Solomonic king in 112 to 2 verse 23, Kohelet has every conceivable resource at his disposal. But despite all this, he concludes, I turned to all my work which my hands had done, and to the toil that I had toiled to do, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was no gain under the sun. 
The critique provided by Ecclesiastes is a simple but important one. Kohelet's self-reliant wisdom, his autonomous exploration, does not deliver. I have not found what my soul has constantly sought, 7 verse 28. In the end, Kohelet can recommend only the enjoyment of life's simple pleasures as a kind of consolation prize. There is nothing good except 2 verse 24, 3 verse 12, 3 verse 22, and 8 verse 15, or as a kind of distraction, 5 verse 20. Yet even this, he admits, is limited by the reality of death, 9 verse 10, hidden by God's mysterious ways, 2 verse 24 to 26, 6 verse 1 to 2, and imperiled by divine judgment, 11 verse 9b. This is a far cry from the narrator's confident recommendation of covenantal faith and obedience as the very purpose of human existence, 12 verse 13, and the foundation of hope in the face of eschatological judgment, 12 verse 14. The lesson here is that expressive individualism is doomed to disappoint current generations of young people just as its ancient precursor did for Kohelet. Reconfiguring our methods of children's and youth ministry to situate them within the postmodern quest or to appeal to an expressive individualist worldview is a dangerous concession to make. Jason Leaf's poetic youth ministry is a good example of such a concession. Critical of what he considers strong theology, Leaf advocates a weak theology that relinquishes all attempts to coerce, control, or use authority, no matter how good the ends might be. This even includes the, seeming, the seemingly innocuous language of building and growing, biblical though it is. We can see that Leaf holds to tenet four of expressive individualism, the rejection of all forms of external authority. A more cautious engagement with postmodernism can be found in Wide Awake in God's World, in which Graham Stanton develops dialogical youth ministry. Stanton accepts expressive individualism as the cultural context of young people, but he establishes a number of safeguards to ensure that biblical authority is not sacrificed. For example, the quest for authenticity is grounded in the biblical concept of personal responsibility. And the task of meaning-making occurs in constant dialogue with Scripture as a norming norm. The end result is a practice framework that promotes creative engagement with the Bible and a community that promotes freedom for young people to explore their Christian identity with adult mentors as their guides. The reading of Ecclesiastes I have presented above, however, leads me to be more pessimistic about the trajectory of personal spiritual discovery and more optimistic about the deconstruction of expressive individualism itself. 3.3. Responding to Expressive Individualism The teaching of Ecclesiastes 
has more to contribute to children's and youth ministry in the postmodern age than just a critique of expressive individualism. In the following, I pro- propose four practical applications of the preceding study. Process versus content. As I have argued above, Kohelet's wisdom does not fail because he points it in the wrong direction. It fails because of deficiencies in his very approach to wisdom. This is a failure of process, not content. Leaf's diagnosis here is on point. We often instruct children and adolescents in Christian beliefs and behaviours, but leave their existing worldview intact. As these beliefs and behaviours struggle to work within this framework, they are eventually discarded as inauthentic. The situation is analogous to running apps, Christian beliefs and behaviours, on an incompatible operating system, expressive individualism. The operating system itself needs to be upgraded for the apps to work properly. This is not to say that children's and youth ministries should stop teaching Christian doctrine or its ethical implications for money, sex, relationships, family, school, and so on. But rather than just teaching content, these topics should be taught as case studies in learning how to think. This is how I understand the book of Proverbs to work. Chapters 1 to 9 establish a framework for for wise thought, while chapters 10 to 29 provide a range of sayings, far from exhaustive, that serve as case studies in thinking wisely. The following three proposals provide concrete examples of children's and youth ministry practice that put process over content. God's will versus my will. Ecclesiastes teaches that the human heart, our desires and our will, is an unreliable guide. This is demonstrated by the failure of Kohelet's wisdom as he disregards the prohibition in Israel's Torah, do not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, Numbers 15.39, and the father's admonition to fear God and keep his commands, Ecclesiastes 12. Verse 13. In contrast to the expressive individualist, for whom all moral judgments are merely expressions of feeling or personal preference, tenet three, biblical wisdom teaches a better way to navigate life, subordinating our will to the revealed will of God. This same counterintuitive wisdom is evident in the gospel, where Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Mark 8.35 Here we can apply my previous point of emphasizing process over content, specifically to the topic of Christian ethics. As an example, think of how youth groups have often taught adolescents about sexuality persuading them to reserve sexual activity for marriage because of the negative consequences of STIs and unwanted pregnancies and because married people typically have the most satisfying sex lives. 
Notice, however, that this uses the framework of expressive individualism to appeal to the young person's desire for a personally satisfying life. In place of this transactional wisdom, what does a person profit, we should opt for a relational wisdom, fear God. Relational wisdom consists of two movements, learning to trust God's will and learning to be suspicious of your own. Young people will only come to trust God's will as they get to know his character, and they will only learn to question their own desires with a robust doctrine of sin and sober self-awareness. The Wisdom of Others versus My Experience Kohelet illustrates the limitations of searching for wisdom through your own experiences rather than seeking the wisdom of others. Positively, Ecclesiastes teaches the importance of listening, which elevates the knowledge of others, including history and tradition, over that which a person can discover for themselves. Such would be unthinkable for the young person who operates within a framework where forms of external authority are to be rejected, tenet four, and lives within a world which credits youth with wisdom and sees old age as corrupt, myopic, or behind the times. Biblical wisdom, by contrast, exhorts the young person to listen to their parents, Proverbs 1 verse 8, 4 verse 1, and so on, and to seek the counsel of the wise, Proverbs 1 verse 5 and 6, Proverbs 13 verse 14, and 22 verse 17, who are often but not always older. Helping children and adolescents to value listening over experiencing is a countercultural approach to knowledge that values humility over authenticity. This is to heed the warnings of Proverbs concerning pride. For example, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 12 verse 15. It means asking the question, what do others know that I might not? These others could be the Christian community, as expressed in intergenerational ministry. Connecting children and adolescents to the broader body of Christ has been identified as a key response, perhaps even the closest our research has come to that definitive silver bullet, Powell and Clark, in studies of the dropout problem. These others could also be the historic Christian community that has left its witness behind in the form of tradition, liturgy, hymns, historical, biography, and other Christian writings from times different to our own. Provided this is done in a measured and age-appropriate way, there is much to be gained from this approach. It is a powerful contrast to the desperate attempt at relevance that unwittingly teaches young people that there is little that can be learnt from the past. God's story versus my story. A final response that Ecclesiastes provides to expressive individualism is to, pre is to present a better story for young people to inhabit. Kohelet's intense first-person speech and his royal persona in 1.12-2.23 to 
present him as the lead character of his own story. Although this was unlikely the author's intent, the royal fiction of Ecclesiastes makes the book highly relatable to the expressive individualists. After all, expressive individualism teaches us to view ourselves as the protagonist in our own stories, and not just any protagonist. Young people have been raised to see themselves as princes and princesses of their own Disney films. With this sense of royal autonomy, Elsa sings, It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. The author of Ecclesiastes lets Kohelet run his course with this flawed wisdom. For most of the book, it is a case of show, don't tell. It is not until the epilogue that the author makes the alternative explicit. Fear God and keep his commands. 12 verse 13. These words invite the reader to participate in a different story. They recall Israel's moment of redemption when the people of God arrived at Mount Sinai and received the law with trembling. Exodus 20 verses 18 to 21, 34 verses 30 to 33. The author also orients his readers towards the future. For God will bring every deed into judgment. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 14. Rosner starkly presents the options before the young person. The choice for all of us is between a starring role in our own short story, the genre of which could be a tragedy or farce, or a bit part in the grand story of God and the redemption of the world. Kohelet clearly pursues the former option, but the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole commends the latter. One way to help young people to find their place in the bigger story might be to actively involve them in mission and social justice. Indeed, these activities have been identified as predictors of sticky faith and resilient disciples. But there is a danger that even here we can fall into the self-reliance of Kohelet, as is often the case for the young postmodern in their quest for justice. The chief means of inviting children and adolescents to to inhabit God's story is through Christ-centred teaching, or what Sydney Anglicans like to call biblical theology. This means more than teaching the content of the Bible or answering the question, how do I go to heaven when I die? Christ-centred teaching narrates the bigger story of salvation that culminates in the saving work of Christ, the true protagonist. It calls for the hearer to respond with repentance and faith, which is how one steps into and remains in Christ's story. There is also a place in this kind of children's and youth ministry for the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which serve as signs and seals of what God has done for young people in Christ. 4. Conclusion I began this paper with reference to the high dropout rate of Christian young people, 
noting the consensus that we are not adequately preparing them for life in a postmodern age. Amidst the discussion of the various proposals for how to attend to this problem, I have turned to the book of Ecclesiastes for its wisdom in teaching young people how to navigate life. My analysis of Ecclesiastes has revealed that the author has used a character, Kohelet, to illustrate a flawed approach to wisdom. This is demonstrated in the failure of his postmodern quest in chapter 1, verse 12 to 2, verse 23. The problem with Kohelet's wisdom is not that he directs it to the wrong objects. Rather, like expressive individualism in our own age, it is the very framework of Kohelet's thinking that needs redemption. This invites us to re-examine the way that we disciple young people, emphasising how to think over what to think. This will require some adjustments to our expectations of discipleship. One could teach a child what the Bible says about respecting their parents or teachers within a single afternoon of kids' club. Training such a child to trust God's will to value the knowledge of others over their own, and to see their place within God's story, is a long-term project. Although this work will be slow, we can also be confident that the truth of biblical wisdom and the faults of postmodernism will be laid bare over time. The grace-filled work of the children's and youth minister is to spare young people from Kohelet's fate of discovering this the hard way. The Effective Ministry Podcast is a production of YouthWorks in Sydney. We want to see effective youth and children's ministry in every church. And one of the ways that you can help us do that is by letting people know about this podcast in all the usual ways, like, comment, share, and review on your favorite social media and podcasting platform. If you've got comments, thoughts, or questions for this podcast, you can email us at effectiveministrypodcast at youthworks.net And also check out youthworks.net for other ways that YouthWorks can help you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your church.